Welcome, everybody. Thanks again for joining in with us from all three churches in the Zero Collective. I just want to say happy Father's Day. It's great to be able to just gather together online and just be together on this day. And if you're just joining us, last week we started a brand new series called In the Wild. And so what we're going to be doing for the next few weeks is we're going to be joining Israel on their journey through the wilderness. The story is that uh, Israel were slaves in Egypt and God rescued them. And then they wandered for 40 years during this time in the wilderness before they were finally able to go into the promised land. And so really, if you think about it, the wilderness is any time in our lives where we're going through a transition. The wilderness can represent any transition in our lives. It's a time when we can't go back to the way things used to be but we also really don't know what the new normal is yet either. And I would say we are in just such a time in our country, in our churches. We're in a moment of of the wilderness in our time right now. And so for this series, we're exploring what did God give the people of Israel to help them get through their time in the wilderness and how does he want to speak to us? And so what we looked at last week is God gives the people of Israel a daily prayer called the Shema. And this prayer helped ground them and helped them remember who he was and who they were and who they were going to be called to be as his chosen people. And then beyond that, God gave the people of Israel four spiritual practices, four anchors that they were to begin living into during their time in the wilderness that would help them remember who God was calling them to be and his promises to them. And so last week we looked at the first of those four anchors and we looked at celebration. And we looked at Leviticus 23, where God literally says, there are seven feasts I want you to put on your calendar every single year. So seven times a year, the people of Israel would lay out this huge spread of food and they would have a feast and they were commanded by God to party and to celebrate. And so we looked at that last week. And so today we're looking at the second anchor that God gives the people in the wilderness. And it's actually kind of the opposite of feasting and celebrating. And the second anchor God gives the people of Israel is the spiritual practice of fasting. Fasting is the spiritual practice that God gives them to help them remember who he is and remember who they were. Now, there's actually more about fasting in the scriptures than there is about prayer. There are more verses about fasting than prayer. And yet, you never hear people talking about their fasting life, right? I mean, people, we we have books and books and books written on prayer. We talk about prayer all the time. That's a spiritual discipline that we seem to lean into a lot. But we very rarely talk about fasting or even practice it as part of our walk with God. And so we're gonna be exploring fasting today. And what does that mean to make that a spiritual discipline in our lives? And so really, you can fast from anything. I mean, I've heard of people fasting from social media where they will literally take a break from Instagram and Facebook for a period of time for spiritual reasons. Uh, I've heard of people fasting from caffeine. But really, traditionally, when you look at it in the scriptures, whenever fasting is talked about, it's talked about in terms of food. It's talked about in terms of our, our food that we feed our bodies with. Uh, so fasting is denying yourself food for a, a certain period of time for spiritual reasons. That's what fasting is. 
And so we can learn a lot from fasting and how it can actually be a discipline that helps us during our time in the wilderness as well. Um, so what, what's interesting is where this idea comes from is we talked last week about how there are seven feasts of the Lord. The sixth one of those seven feasts is called the Day of Atonement. And the Day of Atonement was actually the most holy day in the entire Jewish calendar. The Day of Atonement was the sixth feast, and it was the time when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the most sacred place in the temple, and he would offer a sacrifice on behalf of the people of Israel to atone for the sins of the past year. Now, I want you to look at what God commands the people in Leviticus 23 on the Day of Atonement, on the day of this great feast, the holiest day of the year. Here's what God commands the people. He says, hold a sacred assembly and deny yourselves. Now, when it says deny yourselves, that's a specific reference to fasting. It means they weren't supposed to eat any food for the whole day on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. So they gather together, hold a sacred assembly, deny yourselves and present a food offering to the Lord. So it's called a feast of the Lord. And it was a feast because they laid out this huge spread of food. There was, all, there was food offered to God but they themselves denied themselves. They had no food on the day of this feast. They fasted for the day of atonement. Now, now why? Why in the world would they be commanded to fast on the day where their sin was being atoned for? The reason is because there is a deep connection between fasting and, or between sin and between food in the scriptures. There's a relationship all through the Bible between sin and between food, and it reveals something about our lives. It reveals something about our desires and the things that drive us that we can learn. And so what I wanna do is I wanna take you through that relationship between food and sin and the story of the Bible. And I believe if we can understand that, it'll help us understand how fasting can actually help us in our time in the wilderness that we're living in right now. So we're gonna go all the way to the beginning of the Bible, all the way to the book of Genesis. This, the story of the Bible opens up, it's this beautiful creation story where God creates the heavens and the earth, and then he creates this perfect garden where everything is the way he, he desires it to be. And he places Adam and Eve, the first two humans in the garden to live in deep relationship with him. And so they have this beautiful relationship where, where God is providing for their needs and they're relying on him until you get to chapter three, of Genesis, and this is what it says. It says, the serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals the Lord God had made. One day he asked the woman, did God really say you must not eat the fruit from any of the trees in the garden? Of course we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we are not allowed to eat. God said, you must not eat it or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. The woman was convinced. She saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious, and she wanted the wisdom it would give her. So she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too." 
Now, there's so much in those six verses. There, there's just layers and layers of meaning. But what I want to pull out for you today, what I want to just highlight and help you see today is this idea that the very first sin had to do with food. The very first sin that, that broke the relationship between God and human beings had to do with food, what, what we put in our bodies every single day. And what's happening here is essentially God's provided everything for Adam and Eve, but the first sin was Adam and Eve being tempted to go outside God's provision and to meet their own desires, to meet their own needs in their own way. I mean, literally God essentially says, look, I gave you bananas. They're so good for you. And yet you decided you wanted to, you know, make a trip to McDonald's and have a Big Mac. And literally, the things oftentimes that God provides for us are good. They're the best things. They're the things that we really need. They're the healthiest options. But oftentimes, the shortcuts we take, the ways that we short-circuit the provision God has placed in our lives, oftentimes are not the best ways to meet our needs. And so the story of sin, as it begins in the Bible, centers around this issue of food. But the story doesn't end there. You go forward into the story of, the, of Israel in the wilderness, and Israel is literally, they've been freed as slaves, and they're about to enter into the wilderness. Take a look about at how this relationship between sin and food gets revisited again in the story of Israel. This is Exodus 16. It says, Then the whole community of Israel set out from Elim and journeyed into the wilderness of sin between Elim and Mount Sinai. They arrived there on the 15th day of the second month, one month after leaving the land of Egypt. There too, the whole community of Israel complained about Moses and Aaron. Now listen to what they say. If only the Lord had killed us back in Egypt, they moaned. There we sat around pots filled with meat and ate all the bread that we wanted. But now you've brought us into this wilderness to starve us all to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, look, I'm going to rain down food from heaven for you. Each day, the people can go out and pick up as much food as they need for that day. I will test them in this to see whether or not they will follow my instructions. Now, again, there's so much in these verses, so much meaning. But again, what I want to pull out for you, what I want to really help you see is that this Israel's sin of grumbling and complaining in the wilderness had to do with food. It's the same thing as the Garden of Eden. This sin of food comes up again and again. Literally, Israel would rather be slaves in Egypt and have all the food that they could possibly want. They would prefer that than being free people who have to depend on God and rely on God every single day for their needs to be met. So what God does in response here, we just read it in these verses, is God responds by testing them to see whether or not they would be faithful to him. So what he does is he rains down manna, literally bread from heaven, God gives them, and he gives them just enough for that day, just enough to meet their needs for that day. So they had to trust him every single day for what he would provide for them in that day. This is why later when Jesus comes along, he teaches his disciples to pray. He says, give us this day our daily bread. 
it's a reference to this passage. It's a reference to the manna that was given to Israel in the wilderness, their daily bread, just enough for that day. Now, we struggle with this all the time, don't we? Really, if you think about the idea that spiritual maturity in many ways can be measured by answering the question, what controls me? What has control over my life? If your relationship with food controls your life, that is a spiritual issue every bit as much as a physical one. If your relationship with alcohol controls your life, if you have to have a drink in order to steady your nerves, in order to get through a day, that is a spiritual issue every bit as much as a physical one. And we can take this beyond just food and drink too, can't we? We can take it to anything in life. If your relationship with Netflix has control over your life, that's a spiritual issue, not just a relational one. If pornography has control over your life, that's a spiritual issue, not just a relational one. And the reason for this, the reason why God tests them and calls them to be faithful is because we go ahead to that next slide. God wants to establish dependence on him. What God wants to do is he actually wants to establish a relationship of dependence on him for our needs to be met. That's what he wanted for Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. That's what he wants for Israel during their time of wandering in the wilderness. And that's what God wants for you and for me to experience in our relationship with him. He wants to be our go-to. He doesn't want anything else to be our go-to to meet our own needs outside of him. He wants us to look to him and to depend on him and our relationship with God. So food becomes this symbol of a lot of things. It represents a lot of struggles that we have in our lives. Now, later, as you continue the story of sin and food in the story of the scriptures, the story is not over yet. You can fast forward through the 40 years that Israel wanders in the wilderness until you get to the very end. They are about to enter the promised land. It's right there. They can see it. They can almost taste it. It's right in front of them. And this is what God says to the people of Israel through Moses. It's Deuteronomy chapter eight, right before they're about to go into the promised land. Take a look at this. It says, it's a land where food is plentiful and nothing is lacking. It is a land where iron is as common as stone and copper is abundant in the hills. When you have eaten your fill, be sure to praise the Lord your God for the good land he has given you. But that is the time to be careful. Beware that in your plenty, you do not forget the Lord your God and disobey his commands, regulations, and decrees that I am giving you today. For when you have become full and prosperous and have built fine homes to live in, and when your flocks and herds have become very large and your silver and gold have multiplied along with everything else, be careful. Do not become proud at that time and forget the Lord your God who rescued you from slavery in the land of Egypt. Do not forget that he led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its poisonous snakes and scorpions where it was so hot and dry. He gave you water from the rock. He fed you with manna in the wilderness, a food unknown to your ancestors. He did this to humble you and test you for your own good. 
Is it possible that this wilderness season that we're living in, where we're experiencing uh, a need, where we're, expen- where we're experiencing a time of dryness, is, that, is it possible that God is humbling us and testing us for our own good, for the good purposes that he has for us? This is, this is what he says. He did all this so you would never say to yourself, I have achieved this wealth with my own strength and energy. Remember the Lord your God, He is the one who gives you power to be successful in order to fulfill the covenant he confirmed to your ancestors with an oath. So literally, right before they enter into the promised land, God begins to speak to them about what's going to happen when they enter in the promised land, when food becomes abundant again, when their crops and herds, you know, suddenly they're gonna have crops again, they're gonna have herds, they're gonna be able to provide for themselves They're gonna have a time of abundance as they go in. And so God says, that is the time to be careful. Can you, I mean, imagine a nation for a moment. Imagine that there's this nation that, you know, they begin as refugees and and immigrants who are wandering. and, And literally when they get into their land, they become so prosperous and more and more and more abundance keeps coming into their lives that they actually get to this place where they begin to forget about God who provided all this for them. And so they begin to rely on themselves or the stock market or you know an education or the economy or a job or whatever it is. And they begin to step further and further away from God. They, can, they step further and further out of this relationship of dependence on him, this relationship where he's providing for their needs and what it is that they, they have to have taken care of in their lives. It's in times of abundance in our lives and prosperity when we are most at risk of forgetting about God. When we're most at risk of becoming self-reliant, self-absorbed, and completely obsessed with ourselves. And God has something better for us. He has a different relationship he planned for us. And so this idea of fasting comes out of this history. The the practice of of fasting was given them in the wilderness. So when they were in a time of abundance, they would would have these regular times where they would fast, where basically they would deny themselves uh, the things that they were depending on. They would break their dependence on these other go-tos in their lives so that they could reestablish and reawaken their need for God, their dependence on him and their relationship with him. So I don't know if you've ever tried to fast. I don't know if that's something you've ever tried to do in your life. Uh, I've tried fasting in a number of different ways in different seasons of my life. A few years ago, I tried giving up sugar for Lent. I fasted from sugar for the season of Lent. If you don't know, Lent is the 40 days minus Sundays leading up to Easter Sunday. And so traditionally in the history of the church, followers of Jesus have chosen to fast from something during the season of Lent in order to draw closer to God and break their dependence on whatever that thing is. And so I gave up sugar and here was my experience. For the first two weeks, it was awful. I mean, I didn't even put like creamer in my coffee or sugar in my coffee. Everything tasted terrible. I was grumpy, I was irritable. My family will tell you I wasn't fun to be around. I was, I was tired all the time because I was so dependent on sugar in my diet. And then the most amazing thing happened. About two weeks in, I suddenly realized that all these other foods started to taste better to me. Vegetables, 
you know, started tasting good. Suddenly I wanted broccoli. Suddenly I, I wanted things that previously I had had no interest in. Fruit suddenly had, had this flavor that I never remember it having before. In fact, I was just telling something, uh, telling one of our, our staff this before. Um, I actually came off of that and I, I've never been able to drink pop again because it has so much sugar. Uh, I just, I've never been able to go back to that ever since that time where I fasted. That, that's what fasting does for us spiritually as well. What fasting does is, is it breaks our dependence on something that become, has become our go-to in our lives and it awakens our, an awareness inside of us for our need for God. It awakens inside of us this need to come to him for what we need. Now, the story is not over yet because as you go into the New Testament, Fasting actually takes on a whole different meaning. It actually points to Jesus. And Jesus comes, in, in the Gospels, Jesus comes and he brings a whole different layer of meaning to the idea of fasting. In Matthew's Gospel, Jesus, the story of Jesus is told that Jesus is born, then Jesus goes to Egypt, and then he gets baptized in water. And then he immediately goes out for 40 days and 40 nights into the wilderness where he fasts and where he's tempted by the devil. And it's not until he finishes that 40 days when when he's established dependence on his heavenly father, it's not until then that he begins his public ministry of healing and teaching people and and doing miracles. And, and, uh, you know, it all begins after that time. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel goes down to Egypt. They are rescued through water, through the parting of the Red Sea. And then they immediately go out for 40 years in the wilderness, fasting and being tested during their time in the wilderness. And it's not until after that that they're able to go into the promised land. The difference is Israel failed their time of testing in the wilderness. Jesus succeeded. So Matthew's audience, when they're reading the story of Jesus, they would have recognized the story. They were Jewish. It, it was a, he was writing to a primarily Jewish audience and they would have said, wait a minute, this is, I know this story. This is our story. This is the story of Israel. And so they would have recognized immediately the connection between what Jesus was doing and what Israel had failed at doing in the wilderness. Now there's two ways that they could have responded to this story of what Jesus was doing. The first way they could have responded is by saying, wow, Jesus is a great example for us to follow, (laughs) right? Like Jesus failed, or I mean, Jesus succeeded where we failed. It's Jesus showed us how to do it right. Jesus did it the right way. He succeeded. He went out in the wilderness. He fasted. He overcame the temptation in the desert. Man, we just need to try harder to be more like Jesus. And they could have interpreted it that way. And it's not necessarily a bad way to to read those verses in Matthew's gospel. I mean, really, we all need great examples in our lives. Because it's Father's Day, I mean, I I think about my own dad. I've had a great example of a father in my life. Today, I'm gonna call my dad at some point and I'm gonna thank him for the great example that he's been to me in my life. And really, he's, he's been an example to me when I was young, but also as I've, as I've grown older. My, my dad's been a great example to me of how to grow up, and, but he's also, as he's aging, he's, he's a great example to me right now of what it looks like to grow older 
with wisdom. Uh, he was a great example of how to take charge. My dad was a leader and he, he was always involved in a lot of things. He, he was a great example of how to take charge in life. But as he's getting older, he's been a great example to me of how to let go, how to not have to be in charge. And, and so I'm thankful for the, the example my dad continues to be for me in my life. But, but here's the thing, my dad wasn't perfect. And just like every single one of us, I have wounds and things from, uh, from my dad that, you know, that he didn't intend that are in my life. Even though he was a great example of a father to me and he's been a great father to me, he was a human being. He is a human being. He's not perfect. And so looking at Jesus as an example will only get you so far because really at the end of the day, we can't, we're humans. We can't do what Jesus did. So the other way you can interpret the story of Jesus in Matthew's gospel and the connection to food and sin in the Old Testament story is you can say Jesus is intended to be more than an example. He's intended to be a savior. Jesus is more just than just an example for us to follow. He came as a savior. He came to succeed where we always fail, where we can't succeed. He came to do it on our behalf. And so that when we put our faith and our trust in Jesus, his success is transferred to us and our debt is transferred to him. He actually did it on our behalf. Uh, As I think about my own journey as a father, uh, my wife and I have four boys. But for a period of time, I had a fifth son. Uh, in 2015, our family, we, we felt prompted by God to enter into the journey of being foster uh, parents and a foster family. And so there was almost a year period of time where uh, there was a four-year-old little boy who came to live with us in this very difficult in-between year for him where he had been taken from his parents and taken from their custody and he had been placed with us. And today he actually has been adopted by his forever family and they live here in West Michigan. And it's just awesome to see what God has done in his life and he's doing really well. But that year that he was with us, that in-between year for him, it was a really difficult year. And so what happened is I, I had like this kind of fairy tale idea, I think that a lot of people tend to have. If you've been a foster parent, you, maybe you did this too. But when I learned that he was gonna come to our house, he'd been taken from his parents and he was gonna be with us. I had this idea like, man, I'm gonna be a great like replacement father for him. You know, I'm gonna step in. I'm gonna be the dad for him that he never had. I'm gonna be a great example of a father to him where his father failed. That's what I thought. And I thought, man, I'm, I'm gonna do this great thing. I'm, I'm gonna, I, I've got four boys of my own. I'm a good father. I know how to do this. And so my, that was my thought. I'm gonna be this great father. The problem was I couldn't connect with him. I had the hardest time connecting with him. I had the hardest time uh, relating with him. And the reason was because he already had a father and he knew it wasn't me. And it was heartbreaking to watch no matter how many times his real dad rejected him and ignored him. There were times where he didn't even show up for the parent visit. No reason. He just didn't show up. And and I'd watch, you know, this little boy be let down again and again and again. And what was so hard is no matter how many times his dad let him down, he still wanted that relationship. 
he still wanted that dad. Things came to a head. I'll, I'll never forget this experience. Um, after he'd been in our home for a few months, I was going to pick him up from elementary school one day. I, I, that was my job. I would go pick him up every day from his elementary school. And on this particular day, I was running about 10 minutes late. I can't even really remember why. I, I kind of run like five minutes late everywhere I go. But on that day, I don't know if it was traffic or if I just got a late start or whatever, but uh, it was no big deal to me. And, and he was fine. He was in his classroom. His teachers were fine. I was just 10 minutes late. And so I show up and I'll never forget, I go into the classroom to pick him up and he is furious at me. Like he won't even look at me. He won't talk to me. And so I'm trying to get his backpack. I'm trying to get him to go. And it's like, he, he's not even acknowledging me. I'll never forget like walking down the hallway to take him out to the car. He's like, he won't hold my hand. He's trying to break away and run away from me. He actually ran away from me, got out in the parking lot and ran across the parking lot. And so there's this awkward moment where I'm trying to, you know, help him and get him in his car seat and buckled in in the car. And we get in the car and it's just been this awful experience. And I'm, I'm driving and suddenly it dawns on me what's happening. This event has been traumatic for him. I've let him down. For me, what was just 10 minutes being late, for him, you know, this was not the first time that he'd been left somewhere and abandoned. So I didn't even notice 10 minutes really, but for him, every second that's ticking by on the clock of those 10 minutes, he is wondering, am I gonna be left here again? Have I been rejected again? Is this just the next person who's not going to be there in my life. In that moment, it, it broke my heart. I, I can, I'll never forget looking at him in the rearview mirror, and the Holy Spirit spoke to me, and what I felt like God said to me in that moment is, Brian, he doesn't need a replacement father. He doesn't need you. He needs a Savior. He needs his heavenly Father, just like you. No matter how perfect my dad was, no matter how good an example I tried to be for him, I needed something more than a good example. I needed a savior. That's what Jesus came to offer. That's what he came to be. I realized I couldn't go back and give him what his dad didn't give him. The only hope was for him to go forward and to get what he needed from his relationship with his heavenly father through Jesus. And so that became my prayer. That became the focus of my relationship with him is helping him to find that. Here's why I tell you that. I don't know what losses you've experienced in your life. I don't know what your relationship with your earthly father has been like. I don't know what needs you're encountering right now. You can't go back and get what you need from your past. Your only hope is to go forward and get what you need from Jesus. And here's the good news. He wants to do that for you. He wants to meet you in that place in your life. He wants to be a savior for you. And so, so here's what I'd like to ask you to think about and to do. The wrong question to ask from after hearing all of this is to ask, well, I wonder what I should fast from. <laughs> That's the wrong question to ask. Oh, you know, if you've never tried fasting, well, I wonder what I should try to fast from uh, right now. The better question to ask 
is the question, where do I need a savior? Where do I need a savior? Where am I at a crossroads in my life? Where do I have a need that's, that's too big for me and I can't provide for it? Where in the midst of this wilderness season am I being tested? And here's the thing, if you've been a Christian for 35 years, if you've been following Jesus for 35 years, I'm asking you that question, where do you need a savior right now in your life? Because oftentimes what we do is is we look at what it means to accept Jesus as our savior and to put our faith and trust in him. We look at it as like the entrance exam to becoming a Christian. But I'm telling you, it's the basis, it's the foundation, it's the base note of everything with our relationship with God. He wants to be a savior. He wants to establish dependence on him. That's what he wants. He wants to enter into that space of your life. So if you can identify that, where do you need a savior right now? it will become obvious to you what you need to fast from. It'll become obvious to you what you're filling that gap with, what your go-tos are, the things that you fill your life with that become sort of the, the things that just become the human kind of substitute versions of what God wants to be in your life. It'll become obvious. It always does. And so if you decide to fast, if you decide to step into this spiritual practice during this wilderness season, I believe God's gonna meet you in that place. He's gonna reveal himself to you during that. And so I'll leave you with this. Um, Satan's goal is always to get us to exert ourselves and to act unaided from God. That was his goal with Adam and Eve when he came and he tempted Eve in the garden. That was his goal with Israel in the wilderness. That was his goal with Jesus when he tempted and tested Jesus in the 40 days in the wilderness. His goal is always to get us to exert ourselves and act unaided from God. He wins if that's what we do. The goal of fasting is to reestablish dependence on Jesus for our needs. That's the goal of fasting. That's what fasting does for us. And so... I'd love if I could, if you just bow with me wherever you're at, if you're watching from home, if you're with a home group, um, if this is uh, just a moment, let's just create some space right now for the Holy Spirit to speak before we sing here. Uh, Let's just bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we just come to you and we just recognize that there are things in our lives, go-tos that we have learned over time to be dependent on. Maybe it's through times of abundance and prosperity in our lives, we've just forgotten about you. Maybe we knew you once and depended on you once in our lives, but we've gotten away from that. Maybe we've never known you to be our heavenly father who wants to provide for us. But God, we recognize our go-tos. We recognize the ways in which uh, we fill our lives with other things than you. And this morning, today, God, we recognize that we need a savior. We need one who is more than just an example for us to follow that we try harder to be like. We recognize that we need one who can overcome the things that we can't overcome, who can win the battles that we can't win, who can fight the enemies that we can't. And so right now we put our faith and our trust in you, Jesus, for our hope, for our salvation, for our eternity, but also God, for this moment right now, for our lives, would you show us where we need to break dependence 
and to allow fasting to happen in our lives, to fast for a season, to allow us to be awakened again to our need for you and to the way that you wanna provide for us, to where you wanna step into needs that are too big for us, for where you wanna step in and be our savior and our provider. We allow you to do it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.